Daniel Jose Gasambide is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Queens College, a psychologist in private practice, and author of the book A People's History of Psychoanalysis from Freud to Liberation Psychology. He is a candidate in psychoanalytic training at the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and conducts research centered on decolonial community participatory action approach to examining colonial mentality among Puerto Rican populations and how intersecting identities inform the experience and resilience of individuals and communities. In his scholarly work, he writes about social justice and cultural competency, psychoanalysis and race, and the history of social justice in psychoanalytic thought. Aside from his work in psychology, he is a spoken word poet and a member of the Puerto Rican poetry troupe, the Titere Poets. Enjoy the show. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Diana. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Well, I am so honored to have you as my first guest on the Decolonizing Healthcare podcast show. It's really, really special to have you here, uh, given the work that you do in this world. And I think I just what want to jump right in and ask you, what is a liberation psychologist? You know, really starting with the hardball softball questions. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, I think it's important to unpack a little bit, you know, what we mean by liberation, what we mean by decoloniality within the framework that I kind of work with, which is a liberation and decolonial psychology approach. And I would say that there are at least two major components to what decoloniality mean. And they're they're different, but they're related in very important ways. Um, one of them goes back to uh, the tradition developed by a lot of folks of the global south, like uh, Walter Mignolo, uh, an Argentinian sociologist, and Aníbal Quijano, who's a Peruvian sociologist, anthropologist in turn. And it's this idea of the decoloniality of knowledge or the coloniality of knowledge, that there are ways in which how we see the world, how we understand ourselves in relation to others that descend from certain kind of Western ways of thinking about self and other culturally that are a kind of aftermath of the colonial era. So the basic idea being that even though formal colonial empires in a sense have collapsed and we live in a post-colonial world, that there are still different roots that take place in our knowledge and how we see the world that betray these broader cultural norms. And so from that perspective, it's important to examine ourselves in the healthcare context, examine ourselves in relation to our patients and how it is that we relate to them in ways that can either free people up to be able to fulfill their needs and desires in the world or that constrict them. So there's decoloniality, decoloniality in that sense. And it's in some ways comparable to what in the U.S. Is, is talked about as the idealist framework and critical race theory, that there are ways in which we speak through language that can repeat or emanate different oppressive norms. And mm -hmm. so if we can decolonize and change the way that we relate and speak, that will have a liberatory effect. But there's this other way in which we understand decoloniality as well that comes through in the works of, of course, you know, my boy, Franz Fanon, as well as Walter <laughs> yes. Rodney and other folks in that tradition, mm -hmm. where it isn't 
just about how do we change our ideas in ways that are more liberatory. It's about what are the specific material structures that undergird our world. So think in the context of healthcare, not just how, how can I be more conscious about my patient's culture? How can I relate and treat them in a way that's just? It also asks some concrete questions about, well, how does the healthcare system work? Mm-hmm. Who does it work for? How does it make money? Right. Whose money is it that's made? Why is it that in the United States, we have a healthcare system primarily dependent on your employment? So it's asking questions about the underlying economic structure that makes healthcare accessible to some people, but not to others. That makes healthcare, again, very profitable to a very particular class of people while exploiting the labor and the suffering of the broad majority of people, including those who are people of color, women, LGBT folks, folks who are working class, et cetera. So the way that I understand what a liberation psychologist is and does, to go back to your original question, is a kind of fusion of these two perspectives. So somebody who's able to think about how these dialogues of power and identity take place and get enacted between patient and therapist at that interpersonal level, but who can also think broadly about what kind of system would actually lead to people being able to live their lives in a way that's free and empowered, or to put it more concretely, that we can have a more just healthcare system that's able to take care of all of our needs altogether, so that we're able to think psychologically about how these ideas get embedded in the psyche, very important, but that we can also think structurally in terms of what concrete policies would actually effectuate change in people's lives. Mm-hmm. I I really love that because it it takes I think I think in healthcare and um, I've heard this among other psychologists in in my circles that you know there's now these kind of cultural competencies that are required in the education, but but what you're saying really takes it to the next level when we're talking about systems, right? And really questioning these systems, and that's what really resonates with me because of my experience as a bedside nurse and also as a labor rights activist and community organizer that I see the system and, and I struggle with this question. And I'm curious, you know, your thoughts as well is, um, you know, how can we truly, like, if we are taking this decolonization to the level of Franz Fanon, how do we really decolonize, like still maintaining still while we're in the system, right? And so I even struggle with that, that kind of question. But the, but then I see people like yourself, and I see others who are doing this work in the system, which I think is so important, right? And so I'm curious, you know, then what does liberation psychology have to offer and how does it differ from traditional psychology in theory and practice? Like what does it look like for your patients to come sit with you versus somebody who is, um, you know, has a different training, more traditional like CBT and, you know, and please correct me if my mom's psychology is not my <laughs> forte sure. learning a lot, but, um, but I'm curious about that experience for, for the client or the patient as well. Well, I, I want to be clear that liberation and decolonial psychology are not, they're not like a brand of psychotherapy in the mm-hmm. way that you have like 
cognitive behavioral therapy or psychodynamic right. therapy or humanistic therapy or, right. the, you know, all these different kind of things. Right. Uh, it really is my view that, of course, even though I'm myself psychoanalytic and how I practice, I really do think that people from a broad array of theoretical orientations can really dig into this work and this perspective in a way that can help it really speak to their own lives and their clients. Um, what that looks like, I'll put it to you this way. Um, most models of therapy, regardless of their their acronyms, regardless of which alphabet soup they are, CBT, TFP, IPT, what have you, you know, there's there's a real you can really feel the cap <laughs> dripping from all the brands, Tylenol <laughs> or Advil. But the thing is, at the end of the day, they tend to focus on what I would call a kind of the interpersonal realities of people's daily lives, right? They have some idea about things that happen in childhood that lead us to develop these scripts of self and other, and those scripts we develop in order to survive, right? So things like, oh, you know, if I'm vulnerable with others, they're going to leave me or reject me. So I got to do all these other things to protect myself from rejection and abandonment, right? And those things, even though they keep us safe, right? They do something for us. They may over the long term get in the way of true intimacy, just to give a very super concrete example. Well, most models of psychotherapy come in and do is say, well, what we're going to help you do is experience some changes, maybe get some skills in how to better get your emotional and interpersonal needs met in a more effective and helpful way, right? So it's a very, um, again, sort of interpersonal. It's about direct experiences between people, it, it sort of puts people in a kind of what, what I would call pocket universe, where it's just you, mommy and daddy, or mommy and mommy and daddy and daddy. It's your interpersonal relationships and the therapist, right? What, right. what most of us are saying within the broader kind of liberation decolonial sphere is that that is absolutely very important. I will swear in the interpretation of dreams and say that early childhood experiences are very important but that there's also a bigger and broader world out there that we're not just concerned with our interpersonal relationships. We're also concerned with questions of meaning and purpose, but specifically what purpose we derive from our place in society. Right. Things like right. our work, like where is, you know, where do we fit in the community? Do we feel mm -hmm. not just cared for, which is nice, but also valued? right, in a much broader sense. And so effective psychotherapy, from our point of view, would argue that, of course, working with interpersonal relationships in early childhood is very important, but so, too, getting a sense of where does a person feel that they are in place in the world? Do they feel that they are valued as human beings? Or do they notice that perhaps there are these obstacles, could be around class, could be around race, gender, and sexuality, that get in the way precisely of being able to find deeper intimacy in life, a sense of meaning, a sense of value and purpose. So at the psychotherapeutic level, what that would mean is being able to attend to not just the horizontality of everyday relationships and experiences, but also the verticality of where one feels one mm -hmm. is in the world, right? Something very banal could be, a patient comes in and says, you know, I just don't feel that I am where I should be. 
that very simple statement, I am not where I should be, implies again a certain verticality. Mm-hmm. It could be that I'm not where I should be in terms of my job, right? I'm not making a certain amount of money. I'm not at a certain kind of position in my firm. It could also mean, oh, well, as a man, as a woman, et cetera, I don't feel that I'm fulfilling certain norms that right. I'm supposed to have at a certain place in life. So very quickly, something that could seem like a very you know, garden variety statement, certainly for many of our patients, can actually betray a lot of different social dynamics that also play a role alongside early childhood. But we would expand the scope of that question, not just to how do you then work with your patient in working that through. We would expand it to think about, well, what kind of things can a therapist do or imagine separate from their clinical work to try to enact a more just world? To to give you an analogy, right, if I'm working with, say, a patient who's struggling with diabetes and they're telling me about how difficult it is to be able to own and afford their insulin, we would imagine, well, not just what can I do to support this patient in front of me in the session, but what could I do outside of the session in my own political activity to support a world where they can get better access to the dang insulin, right? That yeah, gets yeah. into more direct questions of healthcare, right? right. Not just yeah. how do I heal the broken heart in front of me, but how do I create a world that if not allows a world where there could be more whole hearts that allows such repair to be much more possible and real, right? Because people are less stressed out. Mm-hmm. They're working hours at work. They have time for their family, right? All of these different structural variables that trickle down quite literally into our ventricles and our heart function. Absolutely. I, as you were saying that I was, you know, what was coming through was, was this question of, well, then does this pathway of decolonization, liberation, uh, does this require then that extra step from the practitioner of action in more of that policy, uh, at the policy level, at the, in the community level, at the, you know, creating policy changes in hand, right? Like it's, it's not either or it's both, right? It, and so that's, that's the way I understand it. I'm curious what your thoughts are around that. Right. I mean, I couldn't imagine, say, a cardiologist who works in a predominantly inner city setting, maybe works with predominantly black and brown communities. And notices like, gee, you know, a lot of my patients are struggling with heart conditions because of stress and because they live in neighborhoods that are more likely to be exposed to pollution, et cetera, et cetera. I can't imagine them saying, well, I'm never doing heart surgery again. I'm just going to do I'm just going to go do policy. Maybe there are those folks who will say, maybe I don't want to do practice anymore. I'm just going to focus on policy work. But I think what we could envision is precisely a plane or a mode of practice where we're able to do both, where we can both commit ourselves, yes, to the daily ongoing uh, kind of emotional labor of psychotherapy and other mental health practices, while at the same time, seeing a kind of practice that takes place off the couch, maybe even in the streets and the halls of Congress. So decolonization in this sense, the kind of unpack it just a little bit more, 
the reason why we would think about not just systems of knowledge, but also systems of structure and power is because the healthcare system that we have today didn't fall from the sky. It didn't just materialize out of nowhere. It comes from a long and very, very difficult trajectory in history that's deeply embedded in the history of capitalism and racism, right? It's a history through which people who have insane amounts of power have used that power to foment racial division in order to use that racial division to fill their own pockets and build their own uh, political agency. So when we say we want to transform the actual structures through which healthcare is delivered, this means quite explicitly changing the dimensions of power to take them away, quite literally, to take them away <laughs> from the folks profit and benefit from this broken system and distribute those resources and tools to the rest of us, right? So we can mm-hmm. have better health. So it's taking a lot of things that people talk about in isolation, like universal health care, Medicare for all, and reembedding those policies within an economic and racial justice framework. That is, wow, that is so profound. And I couldn't agree more. And, and which kind of segues into my next question around the history. And Mm. I'm wondering if you can share, um, share some of the history around the field of psychology and how it did arrive um, in the US, uh, this, this Eurocentric approach uh, to mental health. Like, like, how did we get here, you know, to where we are today? And, and is it working? And in, in the, the way that it's being practiced in modern psychology. And, and I, you know, even saying traditional, it's not even traditional. I would like to just, you know, correct that, that it is modern psychology, U.S. psychology, because we have to think about all of the different perspectives around the world over time Mm -hmm. and how mental health has been addressed, even that term mental health, right? How, uh, how imbalances or dis-ease have been addressed by uh, over time by our ancestors, by different traditions and cultures. And so so can you share a little bit more about how we got here today? Oh, boy. Uh, history of the world <laughs> in 35 minutes, not even five 30. minutes. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, let me let me think about how to best approach that question, because they're sort of you know, there is the kind of history of psychology proper, and that is itself um, embedded in a, you know, much broader history. So I'll try to say just a little bit about that broader history and then zoom all the way in on psychology proper. So a very kind of abbreviated version, this is sort of, you know, uh, Howard Zinn's history, you know, people's history of the world for dummies. A version of this history would be that there came a point in time where this particular part of the world called Europe decided to address certain internal tensions, right? Like we have to remember that the notion of whiteness or white people is a very recent phenomena. These people are doing all sorts of stuff way back in the day. But as a way of accruing political power, they start to look across their differences in terms of religion, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of nationality, and they begin to develop a discourse, what um, Gerald Thorne calls a whiteness project, where all of these people who may have been themselves exploited, 
brutalized, subjected to violence, including religious violence in Europe, could come over to this new world and participate in this new identity called whiteness. The reason whiteness is so important to this history is because if we look at the early history of colonialism, particularly Spain's adventures, Spain, in many respects, floundered in its projects through a combination of two things. One was, again, these internal conflicts with other European nations, conflicts Mm -hmm. with the broad Arab Muslim world, but also Mm -hmm. recalcitrant resistance by indigenous people of the Americas and by African peoples who were brought over to the so-called new world. So Spain was fighting a, a war on three fronts against other European nations, against the Arab Muslim world, and against African indigenous people who were understandably rebelling against them. Right. What England does that's sort of demonically ingenious is create this notion of whiteness, which then creates a kind of um, a sort of mass exodus of different people who can join in this colonial project and be much more effective at putting down indigenous resistance, because now you have mm. people coming from different parts of Europe mm-hmm. to join uh, Great Britain in this massive project. From there, you start to have the concretization of a, a very particular kind of association between blackness and enslavement. Mm-hmm. We have to remember that in the pre-colonial world, different countries, geographies, and people, even people in the Americas, were engaging in some form of slavery system and resistances against that slavery system. Mm-hmm. To, to put a long story short, what whiteness does is tell a whole group of people who in the past could themselves be enslaved mm-hmm. and instead say that they could be free because now there's the creation of this category of people who are seen as always already enslaved. Right. So anti-blackness essentially becomes a fuel for what we know as contemporary capitalism, what becomes colonialism, and what becomes other forms of escriptive hierarchy. The relationship between this this little history that I just described in 15,000 words or less um, is very sort of intricately related to the history of psychology. So let's move on then to psychology proper, right? Um, If we think of uh, some of the founding figures, particularly of North American psychology, in particular, G. Stanley Hall, the first president of the American Psychological Association, uh, very widely known to have been a eugenicist and to have had various discourses around how psychology can help identify who is the right people to be able to benefit and move up in American society and that the the not right people have to undergo a kind of societal rehabilitation. So essentially there's ways in which early on psychology had wedded into it, a kind of social engineering project. If we look at the- So what you're saying, so quick question there. So, so based on that history, psychology, psychology was used as a tool to um to not support to to really just kind of these people who were not of this class or this color or whatever they decided was the uh you know perfect embodiment of human whiteness those were the people that then were treated with these 
psychological um, practices? Is that, is that kind of how it started? Is that what you're saying? Like it wasn't, it's not like people were having, you know, oh, I have depression. I'm going to go, you know, or I'm upset, you know, like the way that we think about mental health and we go see a psychologist today or a psychiatrist. And you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like everyone across the board, whereas it sounds like it was. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one way to put it is that to the extent people struggled with like depression, anxiety, et cetera, the, the underlying formulation is that the reason you were struggling is because there's something wrong with you that makes you not fit into the society. Mm -hmm. So if you tacitly frame that the ideal human is white, is male, is middle, upper class, is heterosexual, then anything that falls short of that is definitionally pathological. Theories around this time talked about degeneracy. So the ways in which the Jew and the African were degenerate because they fell short from this bizarre ladder of humanity that has whiteness at the top or ideas of women as being like crippled men or of people who were gay or LGBT as being not only deficient, but deformed. So it, it sort of set up this very kind of uh, clear hierarchy of what mm-hmm. humanity is mm-hmm. and everything that falls short of that humanity. Right. This is where if you turn to the other side of the ocean over in Europe, where things get very curious, very interesting. So in the European world and European psychiatry at the time, a lot of these ideas take a lot of root, sort of biological reductionism, where uh, mental maladies are a result of brain dysfunction. And lo and behold, those who are seen, quote unquote, as more likely to be mentally ill and deficient, were people who would be in the category of others. So the racial other, gender, sexual, the poor, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it's in this world that, you know, a young, you know, young Jewish boy by the name of Sigmund Freud is born, right? Freud, who was born to a Jewish family in the eastern corners of the Austrian Empire, is sort of born and raised in a world where, to put it simply, because he's Jewish, he's seen as this kind of racial other. He's not fitting in the category mm-hmm. of what an ideal human being should be. And yet at the same time, because he's also white European, he can be given these sort of passes as it were, he can literally pass, so to speak, right. into what the category of the human entails. When he starts doing his work very early on, and a lot of his work, of course, focused on women, he starts to discover that the reason people struggle isn't because they have some brain degeneracy, but it's because there are things that have not been allowed to be felt or allowed to be said by their broader surrounding world. Specifically in the case of many of the women that he worked with, that there were many different tensions around gender, around sexuality, around their place in the family that undergirded a lot of their struggles. To put it simply, that little girls were you know, born to be seen, but not heard, right? Mm-hmm. Out of this basic idea, that part of what makes us suffer is to be deprived of a voice and that we ourselves get kind of turned against ourselves, right? So we identify certain feelings as being bad because they threaten a relationship, they threaten our place in the world. We then have to repress or avoid or suppress those feelings, Mm -hmm. which then wind up doing all sorts of mischief in our body and certainly in how it is that we feel. Right. 
what's very interesting about this idea, and this gets us back to kind of decolonial thinking and decolonial ideas, is that very early on from the very first papers that Freud published on his idea of an unconscious and on the idea of psychoanalysis as a treatment. Mm -hmm. So to put it simply, well, gee, you know, if you allow people to speak freely in a space where they're with a present and attuned other, and that then can lead them to say these things that are unspeakable and that leads to change. Well, as soon as he starts writing that, people across the global South start digging into these ideas. To put it simply, in the history of psychology, there is a counter history of folks across the global South who read, engaged with, and critiqued Freud and many of his ideas. So there's this kind of, um, I call it a kind of baptism, as it were, if you'll forgive the sort of Christian metaphor, where people across the world start taking Freud's ideas and embedding them, not only in the experiences of their own communities, but they start seeing the kind of parallels between psychoanalytic ideas and many of their indigenous, cultural, and religious values. So, you know, a few quick examples, and then I'll pause there. Um, Some examples include the work of Grindrasi Karboste, who was an Indian psychologist who started a written correspondence with Freud, and then began a work of noticing very interesting parallels in um, kind of Hindu teaching and Mm -hmm. psychoanalytic teaching. Or the work of Yasu Kosawa, who actually trained with Freud in Vienna, who was a psychiatrist from Japan. He engaged in a very interesting study of Buddhist thinking and what we call today mindfulness practices and Mm -hmm. psychoanalysis in turn. Okay. All the way back in G. Stanley Hall's Clark University, because of course he was a um, president of Clark University as well. He invites Freud in 1909 to go give a talk. And there's a, a really fascinating picture of this talk that you can find everywhere online. And in that picture, you'll see G. Stanley Hall, you'll see Freud, some of his buddies. But if you were to look on the upper right-hand corner of that picture, you, you might actually notice some folks that we don't often talk about. Uh, one of them being Solomon Carter Fuller, who was not only the first Black psychiatrist, but in my view, also the first Black psychoanalyst, who was present mm-hmm. in Freud's lectures on psychoanalysis at Clark University and who was one of the first people to actually adapt psychoanalytic thinking and treatment to work in the community. So working predominantly with folks of color, folks in the inner city, et cetera. So that's just a, you know, I'll pause here, but that's just a taste of how in the history of psychology, there's a kind of an undercommons or an under history going along with it. Um, People of color didn't just enter psychology in like the 1960s or something. Like we've always been there, embedded in the very beginnings of the field, but telling a very different story about what the field is about and what it can do. Less about trying to adapt people into who the ideal human being should be and more about freeing people up to be able to fulfill their destiny and their full potential. Wow. And and with that, you know, do you think that it's been more of a hindrance to any sort of liberation movement am- among people of color 
to follow that pathway of psycho and psychoanalysis from Freud, you know, from, and with these kind of Eurocentric ideas, has it has, cause, cause, you know, again, it's like these, this question of the system, right. You know, and, and these systems that, and, and it's, and unpacking those. And so I'm, I'm curious because it, you know, you can see therapists of color everywhere and, yeah. and yet in their practice, you know, they're still using those same, um, the same techniques or strategies to work with, with their clients. And, and it's like, it's like, okay, it's still, is that working? Or are they just, you know, again, we have we, tokenism is a real thing, right? So are they just the, the token, you know, per, uh, therapist of color, you know? And so how does that, how does that potentially create more harm? So I have probably a more um, complex answer that I think many people <laughs> come up with, especially with psychoanalysis. If I look at the genesis of what I call these two traditions, one of them being what Freud and his folks were doing in Vienna, the other being this kind of um, tradition of the underside, where you see people from across the world adapting and reimagining psychoanalysis in ways that would probably turn Freud in his grave. I find something very interesting and peculiar. If you look at psychoanalysis in its inception in Vienna, um, not only, as I alluded to earlier, were the majority of people in that movement predominantly Jewish, but they were also predominantly left-leaning. So most of them were communists, Marxists, um, socialists, with Freud being the conservative as a social democrat, which is typically actually more left than <laughs> most liberals in the United mm -hmm. States. So they were all pretty left. And if you look very closely at what they were actually writing and doing and saying around that time, they had a a pretty, I would argue, robust and lucid theory about the role of culture on the psyche. So to make a very long story short, they all were theorizing, again, very lucidly about the role, not just of culture or social structures, but quite explicitly about what it is that race and class does to the psyche and how it is racism and capitalism intersect. Very concretely, again, most of these folks had a theory of how it is that right-wing movements would arise in times of incredible social disruption in order to sell people a kind of empty bill of goods. Specifically, the idea that the cause of why it is that we suffer is because of the other, the Jew, the person of color, the gay, the right. person who's transgender, that they are the reason that you suffer. And if we can just get rid of those people, then we'll be able to build a, a society that works for us, right? right? And the sentiment is something that gets exploited by right-wing demagogues in, in order to get elected into power, mm -hmm. in order to enact policies that wind up benefiting, surprise, the richest and most powerful. Right. And this is something that was ever present in the early psychoanalytic movement. What happens, of course, is that you have this um, swath of right-wing movements leading up to the election of one Adolf Hitler in Germany. Right. And that with the rise of Nazi Germany and, of course, their conquest of Europe, you start seeing the systematic elimination of this kind of progressive psychoanalysis. When psychoanalysis gets to the United States, 
it's a different animal from what it was in its inception. Mm. So when folks get to the United States in the 50s and 60s, by the way, during the time of McCarthyism, when there's the Red Scare and there's this persecution of people mm-hmm. who identify as left, what happens is psychoanalysis becomes much more conservative. It becomes much more focused not on freeing people and communities up to be able to engage the world, but on adapting people to kind of American conventionalism. Mm-hmm. So it becomes much more conservative and through that same token becomes much more destructive. To go back to Freud for a moment, I want to be very clear that this isn't all puppies and rainbows. There is a very interesting left line of critique within Freud and the early psychoanalysts. At the same time, and I think this gets back to your original point, at the same time, it's important to recognize that Freud himself had a fundamental ambivalence toward many of these issues, meaning Mm -hmm. that even as, as a Jewish man, he developed these critiques of right-wing fascism that didn't inoculate him from being subject to or being a perpetrator of different forms of racism, particularly anti-Blackness, in his writings and in his work. In many of his letters with people of color of the global South who were both engaging his work, but also challenging him, particularly around the idea of the Oedipus complex. Hmm. Sometimes he would be, you know, much more open and flexible than would be recognized. But more often than not, the way he interpreted those relationships was as conquests. He wrote to one of his colleagues from India that he was so thrilled by the conquest that psychoanalysis has had in other countries across the world. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, which, of course, they didn't think was very cool. <laughs> they yeah, didn't, they didn't shocker. appreciate, you know, surprise. Like, psychoanalysis right. of the global south didn't appreciate Freud's colonialism, let alone his racism. Right. So what essentially happens here is that you have a, a leftist European psychoanalysis that doesn't live up to its potential and then you have this other psychoanalysis that grows up completely separate and it grows up in latin america in india in japan in china and including people of color in the united states but but it's a kind of fragmented tradition like you see it here and there even though it's everywhere what does that mean in its essence it means that there are aspects about psychoanalysis much like i would argue There are aspects in humanistic psychotherapy and family systems and all these other different traditions. There are things in it that can be incredibly useful for psychotherapeutic work and incredibly useful for thinking very lucidly about social political conditions. But you also have to kind of be very aware of the broader history and the ways in which these different people erred in developing their systems, right? Mm -hmm. So surprise, not everything in Freud's work is great. Some of it is really fucked up and needs to be right teeth, right? But being able to look at what are the parts of it that are useful, right? As Ignacio Martin Baro, who's one of the founders of liberation psychology said, look, Carl Rogers is seen as a humanistic therapist and Freud is seen as like a very scientific psychoanalyst. But at the end of the day, if Freud has a better model of the human body than Carl Rogers, then Freud is going to be more useful to humanization and liberation. In other words, rather than getting stuck in like a particular church mm-hmm. of psychology, 
to really think critically about what does each school of thought bring to the table that's useful, that is functional toward liberation, and then work your way from there. I really, I really like that because I, I do feel that even, you know, in medicine, when we talk about um, what, what is considered alternative medicine or complementary, complementary medicine uh, versus modern medicine, there tends to be this, uh, it, it becomes contentious, you know, it's this kind of like, okay, one is better than the other, but, but similarly to what you're saying, it's really not an either or it's an, and, you know, what is useful about modern medicine? Okay. You get into a car accident. You want to go to the, you want to go to the emergency room. You want to, you know, if you need surgery, thank God there's these amazingly trained surgeons that have these skills that can save your life. And let's also recognize the gap, like the limitations of um, a system that doesn't keep you healthy, right? That, you know, that, that we can recognize these, uh, these gaps and, and start to build, build something that works for, for the benefit of all. Um, wow. So yeah, right. So, so it does, it does make sense that there, there are certain things that we can take from, you said this psychoanalysis and these other traditions and, 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 and to me, that's really what the decolonization is, is because we have so many tools available to us right now um, and this history. And so how can we build our own, a new system that is truly integrative, right? And informed by indigenous values and perspectives, also using the technologies when we need them as well, because we are in this modern world. Mm-hmm. Um so, so that's, that's really, really powerful. And, and I think, you know, to kind of bring us now into, into the modern times and, and what we're, we're seeing now with this mental health crisis, I would love to hear, you know, how, what's happening in healthcare, how is this impacting what, like, how is this impacting your clients? How is this, and what are you seeing in your practice in terms of mental health and the challenges specifically around the healthcare system and its fragmentation? How does that further deteriorate our, our sense of self, our sense of community and, and just really, really create imbalance in, in, in our lives? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do, um, I do like to take a more satellite bird's eye view of how this all shakes out because it's, it's hard to know sometimes when you're just looking at your own experience, why it is that you're suffering, right? Right. We create different stories. We suffer because things that happen with my parents or things that happen with my partner or things happening at work, et cetera. And it's really hard sometimes to put all the pieces together in a way that tells a cohesive story about, well, why are we suffering right now? Like, what is it that's going on? Mm-hmm. And from that bird's eye view, I would say that the healthcare system is but a symptom in many respects of our broader economy mm-hmm. and of the broader uh, system that we've constructed, certainly here in the United States. Um, what's happening today to put it quite simply, and if I if I start sounding like a Bernie Sanders, it's probably not by accident. But <laughs> what we're seeing today is that we're seeing soaring levels of inequality, right. inequality that is itself supported by a fundamentally um, racist system and discourse, whose purpose is, as I mentioned earlier, to really get us divided in such a way that prevents our coming together 
to actually enact formative change. How that manifests day to day are things like, you know, getting burnt down at work, finding that we have less time for our loved ones, or in fact, they're in this ongoing competitiveness, right. even with loved ones, our partners, our children, et cetera, while also being made to compete with each other day in and day out in every conceivable aspect of our lives. That's in essence, um, something that we feel in our daily lived experience, but that's really a reflection of, again, many of these broader forces. In that world of just constant ambivalent and uncertainty, we're all trying to figure out like what to do, how to take care of each other, how to get our needs met. And we're finding what I would say are kind of incomplete stories to try to account for that pain or that suffering, whether it's pointing at somebody else or pointing at a whole group of people that we see as the cause of our pain in a way that ultimately gets us (laughs) just fighting each other constantly. What is Twitter or any form of social media, but a platform where we're constantly pointing the finger at each other instead of looking at essentially the puppeteers who are managing this entire operation. Mm-hmm. To put it quite simply, um, folks who stand to gain quite a lot from us suffering and then offering us a box of glass and Band-Aids at a discount price yeah. to answer our suffering, right? right? To answer why it is that we hurt. That's a very kind of global view of how I see the problem. The answer for which the prescription um, cannot only be uh, therapeutic, whether that's in terms of mental health or, or medical therapeutics, but it has to be essentially political, right. that we need to create a new story that helps us understand each other's suffering in a way that is integrative, but that doesn't kind of ignore like obvious differences in suffering that occur, but that can bind us together in some way. You know, for example, if we were to look at something like the the opioid crisis and opioid addiction, we can tell a version of that story that essentially centers, you know, deaths of despair. Look at how many working class people in Appalachia are struggling, right? That sort of centers a kind of tacit narrative about whiteness and white people struggling. Or you can tell another story that says, my God, you know, look at the opioid crisis in Puerto Rico, this colonial situation, people are suffering, et cetera. You can tell those stories completely in isolation from one another. You can also tell a more synthetic story that says, well, wait a minute. On the one hand, we have this history of people in Puerto Rico, people in Harlem, people across um, the south of the United States, people of color being exploited and subjected at times as test subjects to heroin in order for big to make money and to maintain control over people of color. Lo right. and behold, those same systems that we use to devastate and attack communities of color, lo and behold, they're showing up in white communities as well. Mm. Showing up because of a history of voting for criminal justice practices, of you know, war on drugs, being tough on crime, etc. Lo and behold, the more you arm and equip police officers to be paramilitary units, lo and behold, not only does that have a measurable harm among people of color, lo and behold, that also leads to more white people and white children winding up being shot. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the suffering is the same. 
they're quantitatively and empirically not the same, but they're related. They're connected by a system that not only profits from our suffering, but also weaponizes our suffering against one another, right? To maintain this kind of conflict so that we wind up uh, sort of jockeying for a position in the system instead of saying, wait a minute, like you and I don't suffer in the same way. It's actually very different. And there are some ways in which you are privileged by the system. And at the same time, we're both being hurt by the same system. Right. Or to put, to put it another way, men and women are not experiencing the same kind of pain. There are very obvious ways in which women are subjected to violence and having certain basic rights taken away, especially in a post-Roe v. Wade world. It's not the same experience. And yet men also experience various levels of harm related to, quote unquote, not meeting certain norms of what it means to be a man. So wait a minute, ways in which even though they suffer in very different ways, they're both connected to gender norms that are incredibly toxic. So it's about weaving a story that can help us see our hurt in a different way that can bring us together in order to make substantive political change. Right. And, and, and who, you know, people that I think about as you're speaking to this is like Fred Hampton and MLK and people who are really bringing, they were weaving that story of this suffering across race and gender and, and, and then look what happened to them. Right. And so it's like, it it is so important because I, something I do see today is this really comparing of trauma and, and this identification of like, my trauma is worse than your trauma and vice versa. And, and so it sounds like what you're saying is like, yes, Hey, let's acknowledge that we've all been traumatized. We've all, we've all been suffering for generations in different ways. And it's not about comparing them, but really understanding that like, you're not, you specifically aren't the cause of my suffering. It's, it is this greater system and, and how can we come together around shared values or, you know, cause, cause really it's like a lot, when you think about what we want as humans, right? We want to be able to eat healthy foods. We want access to good healthcare. We want our kids to be safe and to have good schools. I mean, these are very basic things. We want to live in safe communities. We want, when all of those things are, are at risk and which I, I mean, I feel like every single one of those, right? Like our food system, our education, all of these systems are really, really um collapsing right now around us. And so it makes sense that everybody is in this really fight or flight kind of all the time, right? So how do we begin? Like, what are some ways? What would you recommend? Like, how do we start telling those stories? Like, what are things that you're doing to kind of um to set the stage for that coming together in, in our communities? So I, I want to go um, you know, back to one thing you said right quick, just to underscore sure. that. There, there's again a kind of interpersonal level to this and a political level to this. So I think you want to be clear that like at an interpersonal level, you may be the source of my suffering. This is true. Yes, you're right. (laughs) Quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't aren't great. Right. Right. Along along all these different dimensions of identity. So like at an interpersonal level, like we should absolutely like be able to hold each other accountable when we err and be able to call each other in as opposed to out to try to have like 
a relationship, right? Like if a friend right. says something that's like problematically sexist or maybe race, to be able to have those conversations while at the same time being able to think about what we need to do politically in order to achieve those goals. The reason I, I wanted to just touch on that real quick is because sometimes we wind up putting accountability and solidarity as like opposing forces. Like either we're going to hang out around the campfire, sing Kumbaya, like everything's cool, or we have to stress right. like all of our different privileges and identities and et cetera. And I think there's a way in which um, there has to be a space for both while underscoring that like nobody is perfect, right? Like if I had to cancel Abuela, I would be in like a lot of trouble. I would be in like major epic trouble because like, oh, yeah. Abuela is not going to get everything right from no. the and this she is true. time to like get used to the idea of certain things, whether we're talking right. around gender identity, whether we're talking about race, etc. Um, said, but I do you see? Do... Are you Danielle? I'm curious though, because like, I mean, I feel like that's ideal, you know, like this idea of calling each other in and. And having the capacity as individuals and as a collective to hear, to like actually receive. And what my experience has been, especially even recently in situations that become where, where I am calling people in, there's this, this heightened level of fragility. Like there's so much like where, where I see it and this, and, and it has been, it hasn't just been particularly with white bodied folks or black and brown body. I've seen it in black and brown bodied folks too. Um, you know, who are in the, in these circles of so-called, you know, liberation, new world, like let's build this. And, and it's like that there's so much fragility when, when they are called in that then. So I, so I guess my, my question though, is like, what else can we do? Like, is is it comedy is it music like how do we how do we kind of like use these tools that that like i think have been used in our cultures for thousands of years to to kind of transmute these things rather than having this conversation i mean abuelita okay is one thing right like we it's, it is i feel like it is a level of compassion that we have to cultivate right but i guess i'm just i've just found it very <laughs> i've just found it very difficult <laughs> It, you know, to like, and I feel like I'm like, I'm stretching. Okay. I'm stretching. I'm giving you that compassion. And then, you know, there isn't that meeting, that meeting back. And I feel that the, the, the times that we're in is creating that, you know, again, that heightened fight or flight constantly all the time. People are very defensive. Like, you know what I'm saying? So it's just like, Absolutely. what do we do? <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> since we're speaking, at that interpersonal level, I'll start there and then we can, maybe we can move into the more like, what do you do collectively about it? So surprise to no one, I'm a psychologist. So I'm going to like think about it in a very psychological, almost psychotherapeutic way, which is that people, most people are highly conflicted and ambivalent. They may be part of your social justice movement and believe in A, B, and C, but D, E, and F makes them feel icky and uncomfortable inside, right? They carry both of right. those at the same time. And when you engage somebody in any process of change, whether it's in the clinic, 
or whether it's in the streets or going door to door, um, whenever people feel that those different parts of them get activated and you take one side of the position, it, there's a way which naturally puts them in like the other position. So then you're having you're having a confrontation. One of you's right, one of you's right. wrong. Right. And it doesn't matter what metric we look at, people don't like to be wrong. <laughs> people don't like to have to say, I was mistaken or I was wrong or something I did was bad, right? That's too threatening. And also conflict. I feel I feel that like we're such a our society, especially here in the US, is so conflict averse. Like if it feels that way, that there's like people that there's like people are afraid of it. And so therefore they just, it's just kind of this avoidance or, you know, you have the opposite of like the over aggressiveness. And and so it's like finding that balance, you know? I think you do absolutely get both sides. The people who are like, you know, just ready to go to fisticuffs and people who are like, they just want to ostrich and not have the conversation. But the reason I bring up that dynamic um, because any process of change is fraught for that reason if your approach is to basically show them how and why they're wrong, you're always going to, it's just natural. It's a human thing. You're going right. to get pushed. Doesn't right. matter if it's who's taking out the laundry or, <laughs> or talking about immigration policy. Like that's something that's always going to come up. Yeah. So in the clinical setting, there are certain ideas that have been empirically tested in the field that actually show that they work a lot in the way we, tend to usually approach these conversations. And it's essentially how to inhabit, and this is really hard for clinicians, it's hard for everybody, but it's really important, how to inhabit a stance of not knowing. Like you're, you're, you have your beliefs, you have your values, but you're able to hold them lightly enough to get curious about mm-hmm. why the other person is holding their position and what kind of anxieties and concerns are animating that position. Um, the specific intervention that I was alluding to is called deep canvassing. And it's an mm-hmm. approach that's been tested now on a number of experimental studies, which goes a little something like this. You, you knock on somebody's door and uh, you try to tell them about maybe your candidate or you try to tell them about, well, here's why we should support this policy. And then at the end of the interaction, the person's like, yeah, thanks for no thanks. Slam the door in your face, not move the needle at all. Then you have this other condition in these studies where you literally just ask people to tell you about their beliefs, about their concerns, about their anxieties, and to really empathize with them and to communicate that you can see, not necessarily agree, but you can see where it is that they're coming from. This taps into, um, you know, a lot of different psychological processes that, that I won't get into, but to put it simply, people who feel heard are better able to hear, yeah. right? Right. That's what it boils down to. There's a way in which somebody hearing you reflect back their thoughts and feelings that makes them more cognitively open. Right. You then offering maybe a different perspective, maybe an experience that you yourself had that challenges their point of view. So it's really a kind of empathic Socratic dialogue Mm -hmm. that isn't just about 
offering the pushback and filling yeah. them with all the studies and why they should change their mind. Right. It's really about cultivating a relational space that makes it easier for someone in their own words to articulate a different point of view. Now, I want to be clear, even though that's something that's very helpful and very effective, it's not something that you should expect people to just be on all the time to do, right? Because it does take a form of emotional labor. Um, what I would argue is that to if what you need to do to protect yourself and protect your heart is just say like, no, you're fucking wrong and I don't want to hear about it and et cetera, et cetera, then totally cool. Like you got to do what you got to do. But if you're trying to engage in some kind of change process, then I would say that a lot of these tools are often more useful. So at that interpersonal level, what it comes down to is, can I sit with this person in, you know, long enough to be able to communicate a sense that I may not agree, but I understand the fear and the anxiety that's animating their point of view. Mm. And to then use that as a way to create tension, not between me and them, but between within them, between different point of views they may already have. Is that similar to kind of what how Jung, you know, referred to as holding the tension of the opposites? Is that okay. or is that to, right? Yeah. That's what that's what it sounded like. Um, that's really helpful, and 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 I guess you know, for for me as somebody who is interested and and active and 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 curious about that change making process you know that that is really really important to um like that empathy piece right is important and and cultivating that but what it sounds like too it sounds very similar to nonviolent communication really and really cultivating that curiosity and, and that reflection back to really show somebody like, Hey, I, I am, I'm actually listening to you. And I, I may not, while I may not agree. Okay. Here is, uh, you know, this is what I heard you say. Is that correct? You give them a chance then to, to correct if that, you know, and rephrase if it's wrong. And, and I found that to be really helpful uh, for myself, definitely in those tough conversations. And, you know, now I'm curious, you know, we've kind of, we've been through the history, some history, we've talked about kind of some, some problems. And, and, and now I would love for us to kind of move into more solutions and some visioning and dreaming of, of what you see as a decolonized, really meant, I guess we could focus specifically on mental health. Like what is a decolonized mental health system look like? And, and, and then to piggyback off of that, if if we're talking about the system of mental health, I would also say, I would also argue that that includes education and the economic system, right? Right. Um, so like, so what does that look like to you? Like, what do you envision as uh, this, this, not utopia, but an actual system that serves the, that is the benefit, benefiting all involved? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I very much am in line with with what you're saying in terms of you can't treat a system in isolation because it interacts with so many different systems. Right. People say, you know, the best mental health treatment is prevention. Um, there's often a recognition that that must of necessity include policy. 
and policies that on their face would seem to have nothing to do with mental health, right? <laughs> yeah, nothing to do with psychotherapy, nothing to do with any of that stuff. But with things as simple as like people having a livable wage, right? People being able to have their kids go to a, a, a school or educational program that is not segregated or hierarchized in terms of income, right? So education plays a major role, daycare, universal K through 12. You could really think of a whole um, package of policies right. that coming together. Uh, it's not that it would like eliminate mental health issues. No therapist will ever have a patient knock on their door after a breakup ever again, right? But what it, what it will do is create an environment where it's easier to form and maintain relationships because right. we're not arguing about money. <laughs> it's it, it, We're not arguing about money or where the kid's going to go, right? It takes a lot of these pressure points on people's minds and in people's relationships, and it takes it away from the realm of individual sort of market-driven action, and it's something that's provided for by the state, Right. I would rather live in a world where maybe I make less money, but I don't have to worry about housing and healthcare for my parents, right? Mm -hmm. so all of these things together would on their own not eliminate, but would substantially reduce mental health uh, issues and much mental health distress. Um, I have to look it up, but uh, I remember a study that came up in the aftermath of the first few stimulus checks that showed that for a lot of people, rates of depression and anxiety were cut substantially by receiving mm -hmm. a cash infusion because all of a sudden able to apply for a job. They weren't able right. to apply before because they could take time off work. So all of those things um, would be ultimately very helpful. How do you get all of those things? Uh, I don't see a path towards that if not through very serious redistribution programs. So essentially... People who are extremely wealthy, not paying their so-called due, but paying what they owe, paying what they owe to society at large and what's ultimately produced by their workers. So it would, it would really mean redistributing a lot of wealth that's concentrated at the top and having that wealth liberated, shall we say. Right. <laughs> when people talk about liberation, that's one liberation I have in mind, liberating the wealth from yeah. the wealthy. Absolutely. You can create these programs and systems to better self serve people. Um, the same would be true, I think, if we focus in on healthcare in particular. Uh, right now, there's a pretty major debate when you look at healthcare in the United States versus Canada versus other social democratic countries, like, say, France, Germany, all the way up to Scandinavian countries. And the argument comes down to a number of things, but amongst them, well, at least in the U.S., if I have enough money, I can just find a therapist as opposed to having to wait months and months and months to get connected with a therapist in a more social democratic system where it might be paid for by the state. On both sides of that equation, whether you're looking at liberal democracies manage healthcare or how social democracies manage healthcare is that both are still negotiating what the relationship between the market and healthcare is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In social democracies, of course, you have a lot more control of the market. 
even though these are still free market uh, countries. Right. The United States is kind of a crazy free for all. <laughs> like, yeah, basically, if you have money. You can have all the doctors you want. If you don't have money, oopsie daisy, right? <laughs> so in, in both cases, um, I don't think you're going to get to the kind of redistribution we're talking about without really reimagining that fundamental relationship between labor and capital. Yeah. So to what extent, you know, and this is much more radical stuff, like to what extent can workers own the fruit of their labor, right? So going not just to unions, but cooperatives. Right. What does it mean for nurses and doctors and staff to own the hospital, not just the CEO and the stakeholders who make money off the hospital, right? So right. it would mean a very um, robust transition from the kind of liberal democratic world that we have now in the West to something else that organizes itself differently. Yeah, and and speaking to those Scandinavian countries or those more progressive countries, and you were talking about cooperatives, uh, that is something that I've been talking about quite a bit over the past couple of years myself and reimagining what, could you imagine, you know, what it would look like for the doctors and nurses to own the hospital? And and I know that there's um a, um, a therapist owned, you know, cooperative in New York as well. I remember reading an article about it and, but, but what I was going to share was that in the Netherlands, there is a worker co-op home health company that was started by a group of nurses and mm. they have expanded so much. I think it's called, I'll have to send it to you, uh, Bertsorg or, uh, or something like that. And they actually have better patient outcomes. They have, you know, higher satisfaction among employees because they are, you know, they own the company. And, and so it makes sense, you know, when we think about this, this redistribution and rethinking the way that we look at labor and capital that we would, that we would really start looking at, at structures like that, you know, that are, because that, I mean, that was one thing I never really understood in the hospital either. And it was so frustrating, just constantly fighting for these things that should be very basic, but because the decisions being made at the top were so disconnected from the, the suffering, not only of the patient, but of us, the workers. Yes. And, and yes. so it, it, it really just kind of eliminates that altogether. And, and so to me, that makes the most sense. And, and, and how can we have more worker owned co-op healthcare co-ops and hospitals and clinics and facilities like that? Because that, I mean, that kind of goes back to the roots of, of medicine, in my opinion, because, well, I mean, there wasn't really even, I, I, mean, I think of my, my father who is a, who's an, a neurologist and he, um, when he, he was trained in, in Mexico and he, and my mother, they was no cash exchange, even with, when they would go see patients, it was like, they were just fed and they had a place to stay, you know, it was kind of like he would see. So he, when you come to the U S with that mentality of wanting to be of service, and then, and then you're, uh, you have this system that is crushing you when you're just really trying to be of service to people, you know, it's, it's a, he ended up, you know, he's ended up struggling quite, quite a bit financially being in the system. And so it's, it's just really horrible to see 
people who signed up for this work to be struggling so much with their mental health, you know? And, and so, the, and I guess that's my other question is like how much, not only for patients and clients, would this be beneficial, but the mental health of the practitioners, the providers, because we all, you know, are struggling right now. We, are, we have a healthcare provider shortage crisis in this country everywhere. So, so it seems like it would be kind of a, a win-win <laughs> if we were to look at these cooperative systems. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, um, you know, that comment itself is very interesting because, you know, basically there were markets before capitalism, right? Like if you look at, um, you know, especially the out of Muslim world at mm. turn of the millennia, the mm-hmm. first centuries, like they had markets, but they had them, you know, very well regulated. And there were a number of guilds who helped manage things and run things. The reason I bring that up is because today you have hospitals closing left and right and then being consolidated into right. massive hospitals. Yeah. Which, may get more clinicians and more patients, but ultimately everyone's unhappy, right? Right. But- and actually the patients actually suffer because the hospital I was working at was doing exactly that. You you see San Francisco basically consolidated, you know, children's Oakland, which used to used to be completely independent. And they were basically moving all of the specialty services into San Francisco, therefore requiring patients to now travel into San Francisco, pay for transportation, pay for parking. And, and it was like, you know, we were seeing that we were getting the brunt of that as patients would come in and be like, what's going on now? My doctor's not even here. And the doctors were actually leaving because they were like, we don't believe in this, you know? Well, the reason I mentioned that is because when you have this kind of mega consolidation of hospitals and also major like clinics, practices, the better helps of the world, et cetera. Oh my gosh. Don't get me started on better help. (laughs) No shade, all of the shade at better help is that it ironically reduces competition, right? Mm -hmm. But if you have like a series of cooperatives where, you know, it's really like pockets of clinicians who are able to get together, take care of their clients, make sure they're taken care of, that would naturally create different opportunities. And I bring that up because, you know, there's a sort of fetish, fetishization of competition and markets and capitalism. But more often than not, what happens is the elimination of any meaningful, if not competition, then options. Like I have Pepsi and then I have Coke. These are my and two psychotherapeutic okay. options. And isn't that supposed to be the point of capitalism is to generate competition? Like from what I, you know, like when you think about the origins of capitalism and what what the intention was from, you know, my basic economics, you know, studies was that like, is supposed to incentivize competition. And that yet that like what, what, what's happening is the opposite, right? Which just goes back to, I guess, what Mark said, right? So I guess because if every single thing that we're told is like the jewel of capitalism, right? Competition, individual freedom, agency, right. all of those things go to the shitter. Totally. You're less, totally. you're more stressed out. You can't change, you can't even change jobs. So right. all these things that were promised are supposed to be amazing under the system just uh don't quite shake out that way right, um, right. there was uh well you asked me another well i think you asked me about like the clinicians oh like burnout yeah we we're just talking i was yeah. curious about you know 
the mental health of the actual providers themselves, you know, because that's a yeah. huge focus of my work is, and, and my nonprofit is supporting, supporting the, the actual providers themselves as, as we see suicide rates, you know, super high among physicians and nurses and, and, and the root, when I look at the root cause of that, it's, it's always comes back to, again, that greater system. And, and, and so I'm, yeah, I was curious to kind of your thoughts about that and how these other alternative or um, cooperative systems could support that. I mean, um, you know, remember how earlier we were saying that like, capitalism, white supremacy, all these things, like they, they give you this wound and then they try to sell you a box of band-aids and glass to treat the wound, right? Well, it's the same oh, yeah. thing with burnout, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. when burnout started emerging as a discourse, as a thing, it's precisely when you start to have like, I guess you could call it the burnout industrial complex where we're going to work you like a horse yeah. and we're going to tell you to take care of yourself, but give you no tools whatsoever to do that. And we're certainly not going to give you more resources to actually give you space to take care of yourself. So it's just this ongoing cycle of production where even your suffering itself, the burning out, as it were, even that becomes a thing to get capitalized on and for people to make money. So, oh, you know, we 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 have a hospital just started this, uh, you know. Uh, this uh, this deal with such and such app. So download the mindfulness app, and that'll get yep. you. So it's <laughs> like there's a real thing that's happening, but the attempt to talk about the thing itself gets wedded to these market forces. Essentially, in terms of what would be the solution, well, in many respects, the solution is obvious. But it would just involve people who already have all the money to make less money. You know, you know how much infinity is divided by infinity, Deanna? <laughs> how much? Fucking infinity. That's what it is. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> once you, have, you know, like once you have a billion dollars, it, it's like a video game where once you get infinity money, like it doesn't matter. You have you have infinity money. Yeah, you but, can't. It's something that you can't even comp- we can't comprehend. Right. You but cannot quantify it. Like you can't. Somebody, you can't. Like logically, you would think that a billion dollars is less than six billion dollars. Like if I have six billion, I lose five. It's like, oh my god, I lost a lot of money. It's still infinity money. Yeah, it's infinity because you can't even spend it in, in what, like, ten lifetimes or something like that. Like it's so oh, much it's, money. It's impossible. It's just that much money. So the answer is really. um you know, I'm sorry to be so cavalier about it, but the answer to burnout is cha- is totally the restructure of labor relations so that people can be taken care of, et cetera, et cetera. It, specific to healthcare, though, um, I do believe that the combination of the kind of broadband policies we talked about earlier, um, that in itself, I think, would substantially lower the mental health burden society-wise. Um and then the folks who would still have clearly a mental health need and who would need, you know, intensive psychotherapy, med management, et cetera, should then be cared for by a system where the providers themselves are also cared for. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So make sure that the providers themselves are well paid and compensated, but also have 
supervisory structures that allow them to do the work. Like sometimes people think you just learn to be a therapist, then you graduate, you are now a therapist, now you know how to do therapy, right? Mm -hmm. But in reality, especially if you look at the research, you like becoming a therapist is really like the prologue to the book. Mm. Story of the book is the ongoing process of pursuing systems of feedback that help check you and develop you as a therapist, whether that's being an ongoing individual or group supervision, pursuing more training, making sure that you take care of your own needs. All of this goes into not just being a good therapist, but developing your therapeutic skills. So right. if we look at the research, the most effective therapists are not the ones who they've just been in practice for like 50 years or whatever. Right. That would presume that being a good therapist is like being a good musician who only practices when they perform on stage. Oh, gosh. <laughs> And you, that's a terrible, you, I would, you would yeah. never listen to that band, right? I would never pay to see that show. I would never pay to see that show, right? Because a true performer is practicing All their the time before they perform it, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, playing their instrument, whatever. Same thing for clinicians. There are a lot of things that have to happen in between session with each client to make sure that you're meeting their needs, mm -hmm. right? What we do today in actuality is here's duct tape. Here's some here's some CBT training. Now go out and save the world, right? Right, right. So that's another thing. Like you not only need to make sure that clinicians have adequate wages, good healthcare themselves, et cetera. You also need to make sure that clinicians have structures of accountability so that they can hear from another colleague. You know what? That's interesting. Like your reaction to this patient is that you're getting angry and upset my reaction to this patient is I notice I'm getting sad. Hmm. What's that about? You know, what, mm -hmm. why is it that you're getting angry with this patient and I'm noticing myself getting sad? What's going on, right? So that they can hear another point of view that can actually help them go, wait a minute, the reason I'm getting upset with my patient is because I'm seeing their behavior as like aggressive or problematic, whatever. I'm not seeing the behind the behavior is sadness, Behind mm -hmm. the behavior is anxiety. They're just trying to protect themselves. Yeah. Now I understand. Now I can get back in there and do the work. Yeah, right? because it's actually more of a reflection of the therapist, you know, and what the therapist is going through to be triggered by that, that risk, that um, risk, anger, risk with that anger, you know, response rather than that sadness of like, like you were sharing somebody um, they're them reflecting that. Does do these checks exist in the world of therapy? You know, I mean, I'm, is there are there mentorship programs or are there even exchange programs that exist where therapists can travel and even learn like other other therapeutic ways, maybe even in, indigenous ways of dealing with these sorts of issues? Like, does something like that exist? Well, Diana, I dare say your reflection <laughs> earlier was rather psychoanalytic. If I may. <laughs> I mean, the, the short answer is that, like, for the most part, people kind of look for it on their own. So if you are 
you know, if you graduate from, say, an MA or a doctoral program, you become a therapist. Um, some states have continuing education requirements, but that's like I put up a webinar on my yeah. computer and yeah. put on like Lucifer on Netflix or something. It, it's not really the kind of deliberate practice right. that would lead to that kind of process. So some places are a little better than others. So for many people who are in some form of psychoanalytic training, supervision, even after you finish your training, is very important. So people wind up joining supervision groups or they'll have a consultant that they speak with from time to time. Um, People who are more cognitive behavioral might engage in different exercises in between sessions to try to reflect on their patients and figure out what's going on in the treatment. Like there are different ways of doing it, but the core components are that you have a system for feedback from either your patient or from someone else who can see your work, mm-hmm. uh, like videotapes, audio tapes, etc. cetera, mm-hmm. some form of feedback, some form of practice and rehearsal. Some people do imagery like, Oh, you know, like last week, I, I did get kind of upset with my client. What's that about? What mm. could I have done differently? Yeah. What do I imagine the patient would do if I did this? So these kind of imaginal mindfulness exercises. But the most important point is really community. Right. Yeah. Really and I feel that like that's not that's something that you have to seek. Right. So, I mean, that's not something that is automatic with everyone. And right. <laughs> if instead of. If instead of saying you need to give me like if the state said to me, instead of you need to give me X number of hours of a class, essentially, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but instead you have to be in a supervision group. You have to spend X number of hours per week in supervision for X number of clients. That would be by and far much more effective then I go to a webinar or I yeah. go to a class or stuff like that. Cause I, I have to actually say what's going on in a confidential space, what's going on in my work. And for at least one other person to say, Hmm, interesting. Yeah. To say that like, Hmm, like what? Hmm. Or, hmm, interesting. You know, like I can totally hear where you're coming from, but also like, don't you think it's a little weird to say X, Y, and Z to a woman <laughs> or a person of Don't you, you know, to have right. conversations yeah. where the clinician is supported, going back to the earlier conversation, where the clinician can feel heard, but because they feel heard, create an opening for a different point of view and how they work with their client. That really is the essence of what psychotherapy is. It's trying to help another human being develop the mental openness to try different things on for size and we're talking about the patient but that really begins with the therapist modeling mm-hmm. that flexibility right the therapist is like freud incarnate even freud wasn't freud incarnate he he was messed up in his own way so it's really about being in communities yeah i would call them communities of care or communities of mentalizing where clinicians can be in different spaces where they can kind of air out what's on their mind and have somebody who also hears them and helps them then reflect on their patients. 
so they can come to a different point of view so they can get back in there and do the work. Yeah, that that sounds really valuable and needed. And I, I hope any therapists out there listening or, you know, or seeking some of these communities of care and like you were saying, mentalizing and even, and maybe in those spaces, that's where, where there can be more visualizing of what a, a more decolonized mental health system look like, looks like, like, Hey, maybe we don't, we're not sitting across from each other in an office. Maybe we're, maybe we're going for a walk. I mean, I did that with one of my therapists before where I was, you know, during the pandemic, I was like, I don't want to meet on telehealth and I don't want to see you on the computer screen. Like, can we go for a walk? And she was like, Oh, wow. I didn't think of that. That sounds awesome. Let's go. And she was like, I'm going to start doing this with more of my, my clients. This is really helpful. And it actually feels good for her too, you know, as the therapist to be outside. So it's, um, it's, it's really, it's really about creating that space for that reimagining. Right. And, 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 and back to what you were saying, I wanted to just bring this up because when we were talking about, you know, um, the system supporting the clinician, and then we'll kind of wrap up here. I, I had just posted this on LinkedIn, um, a, a study of, that says the burden of clinician and physician burnout, a study. And it's interesting because they did the study and it says a large multi-center study of 15,000, over 15,000 nurses and over 5,000 physician, physicians is finding that respondents rated improvements in staffing and work environments as more important to their mental health and well-being than instituting clinician wellness and resilience programs to just reinforce what you were saying about, you know, here, take this mindfulness app and you'll be fine, you know? So um just wanted to share that because I, I, I just posted that about that the other day. And I think it's important for us to recognize when we are speaking to this decolonial aspect of healthcare. So I mean, that's, you'll have to send me the link for that because that's, yeah. that's fucking amazing. I mean, many of the things that like any reasonable person would care about, right? Like caring about clinician burnout, caring about racial and social justice, right? Caring about reproductive justice, et cetera. There's a way that these things get so, you know, they get siloed into different, like the you know, office of clinician wellness or whatever they call it. Right. That gets totally segregated from like a union. <laughs> it gets segregated yeah. from like, oh, maybe hiring more clinicians. So people are less overwhelmed. Like we wind up compartmentalizing these things instead of seeing that actually maybe a really effective. Maybe it's all connected. Maybe it's all oh, yeah, connected. Maybe... Oh, but in a... <laughs> it's all connected. Like at the risk of being a little spicy here maybe really effective DEI training would be to talk about the history of racism, colonialism, and capitalism. To talk about the fact that, yeah, it's not just racism is bad, don't be racist. It's also racism is used to empower the powerful and get us against each other, especially the most vulnerable. Gee, well, what kind of things could we do at work in order to to not just uh, to sort of obviously, yes, like empower people of color, but also empower people of color as workers, right? Yeah. Well, right. Gee, you know, it, it sure would be nice to have some like meaningful daycare for our kids. Yes. Like, gee, you know, it would be really nice to have like decent wages, right? There are so many things that can happen once you start to say, wait a minute, people are using racism and gender and sexuality 
to get us divided against each other. Yep. We could actually imagine together a better world where we're not burned out all the time. Where right. we don't have to worry about, oh, gee, if I leave this job, am I going to lose my health care? Yeah. And most it's funny oh, because the the feedback around all this DEI stuff, I mean, it's like just pretty ridiculous the way that this has been implemented. It's like, okay, you take this online module, you get checked off, you know, you're, it's part of your competencies now. But again, like we're not addressing the history. We're not, we're not contextualizing any of this. And I mean, we're not, we don't get it in our train, in our medical nursing, you know, training. We don't talk about these, these histories and even, what are the roots of medicine in in slavery, right? And and again, the experimentation on Black, Indigenous, and uh, Brown people, and and so I think that that is a huge part of the 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 decolonizing is this framework of of going back into the history because how can we reimagine if we don't even know how we got to where we are now? And, and, and the numbers, the statistics support all of this. I mean, again, we can go into, um, the maternal mortality among black women, you know, and things like that. So it's all there. It's still happening. It's still very alive for, for many of us, even in this, uh, what, what some would like to say a post-colonial world, right? But, uh, it's very much still colonized and in, in, in our education system and our healthcare and, in our relationships. And so I just really appreciate your work and your courage to, to speak up to, and to be active and and to engage. I know that you also do some spoken word and, and a lot of, um, a lot around the arts with, with your work. Can you share a little bit more about that before we kind of wind? I I just feel like I want to plug that because it's so important. Right. And that's where like part of our roots and where we come from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, um, it's very interesting because these were separate worlds for me, the art world and the world of psychology. But I wound up creating my own little synthesis over time and just, just bringing them together. So aside from being a psychologist, I'm a spoken word poet here in New York City. And I'm part of a, a troupe of New Yorkian poets and Puerto Rican poets called the Titere Poets that talk a lot about heritage and identity and community but also has a focus on uh, gender identity and gender norms, specifically talking around machismo and the ways mm-hmm. that it involves cis and trans men and, men and women within the community. Mm-hmm. So it's really been, um, for me, a really powerful opportunity to take a lot of what I think about in the lab and in the clinical session and just make it much more applicable in the community. So that might take the form, for example, of, not just performing, right? So performing poetry that touches on these themes, but also taking some of the research that I do and taking the findings and using them as kind of points of inspiration to have artists come in and actually reflect on and respond to the research and create maybe a short story, a theater play, a poem or a song that communicates the findings in a down-to-earth way that people in the community can digest. So I can, you know, put up all my fancy PowerPoints showing the data and my lit review and whatever. And that's great. You know, love doing that. No shade. But <laughs> it's also, also, I say, also great to tell a story about the data 
in a way that, you know, doesn't require a doctoral degree and that that. people can listen to and digest, but more importantly, used to reflect on on their own lives. Like, oh, how does this come up in my life? Like, how does, you know, how does colonial mentality come up in my life? How do questions around gender and, and what does it mean to be a man come up in my life? So using it as a tool for what Martin Baró called conscientización or Paulo Freire as well called conscientización, mm-hmm. is consciousness raising. Mm-hmm. So ultimately for me, it's about bringing together clinical work, research and art to do this kind of consciousness raising in the community. That's amazing. And, and, and really that's, that's what I see as actively decolonizing because you are making this information accessible to, like you said, the person who doesn't have a doctoral degree, somebody can take that and, and be like, Hey, I can use this in my life and, and they can play with that, those concepts, but they don't have to be in this psychology world. Right. And it's really, a, that's just really beautiful. I love that. And making things accessible, making it fun and playful and taking also these really heavy things and making art with it, I think is just so powerful. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, I know. Thank you for asking. Me <sighs> yeah. So, so I also wanted to share um, or ask you a question. How do people follow your work? What is the best way to for people to get in touch if they wanted to work with you? And um, yeah, anything else you wanted to share before we kind of close things out with this awesome conversation? I mean, you know, it's the part of the conversation when I'm asked, like, you know, where am I on the social medias? And my answer is like, I don't. Please don't look for me. <laughs> don't look for me in the social media. So I'm not that kind of guy. Um, but where people can find me, if they want to get in touch with me about my work, uh, they can reach out to me at drgpsychotherapy.com. That's my main website. Uh, I should be up soon at the, uh, you know, somewhere in Queens College uh, faculty website. Where I'm going to be starting next week, which I'm very excited about. Yay. Um, I, I have a, I think I have a Twitter somewhere, excuse me. I have an X, I have an X somewhere. Um, an X, right. don't, don't hit me up on X. I'm probably not <laughs> even going to notice it. So your best shot is to reach the, out the to website. my website or shoot okay. me an email. Yes. Awesome. And then you also have a book, a people's history of psychoanalysis from Freud to liberation psychology. So folks can get that as well. You're so much better at this than I am. Um, so, yes, I do my first book, which came out in 2019, A People's History of Psychoanalysis. Everything you wanted to know but were afraid to ask about social justice and psychoanalysis. That's more of a kind of a history book in a way, like going through the history of social justice and psychoanalysis. I'm coming out soon with a second book on decolonizing psychoanalytic technique. So that's a much more pragmatic Whoa. book for beginning season and senior clinicians, that's really going to be more about the actual clinical work. So how do you take some of these decolonial ideas and apply them with your patients? How do you then move out of the clinical session and apply those same ideas in the world of politics and advocacy? And that'll be coming out um, either later this year or early next year. Wow, that's so amazing. I'm so excited to hear that. And we'll have to have, have you back to uh, 
launch the book. That would be really great. I feel like, cause I feel like we could keep talking forever. <laughs> I, would, I would totally appreciate that. I'd be down. Yeah, that would be great. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being here on the show and for launching this project with me. And of course, I had to bring on a fellow Boricua, you know, because they were, you know, <laughs> not, not and, Caribbean nepotism at all. No, no, of course not. No, that's not a thing. Um, and we'll look forward to having you back when your book's out and sharing that with the community. And thank you again for your work. Just really grateful for you and the space. And definitely got to come to one of your shows when we are out in New York. You're sitting. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Thanks, Danielle. Anything else? Do you feel complete? Oh, no, this is great. Again, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right. We'll see you again soon. See you soon.